Welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Exploring alternative investment opportunities available to the everyday investor. Here's your host, Ben Lakoff. Hello and welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Today's interview is with petroleum geologist and energy expert, Art Berman. Inflation, higher energy costs, these things pepper the headlines at the moment. And in this episode, we actually go through a chart book. So Art has come prepared with a presentation. I've linked this in the show notes, so altassetallocation.com. And I highly recommend watching this on YouTube to follow along, although I do try to narrate it in the audio-only version. Plus, on YouTube, you get to see me. Hey, that's so great, right? But in this episode, we cover oil and energy, what's going on in the market, some of the biggest factors for demand and supply, really helping you understand the oil market and energy market. And ultimately, we cover just the bigger shifts in this energy market overall. Art has a wealth of knowledge on the energy markets, and I love being able to pick his brain on these things. Before we jump into the episode, I wanted to take a quick second to thank you for all the great questions and feedback I've been getting. Before I do these interviews, I tweet out asking for questions, and I've been getting some good ones, even DMs. So Keep those up. You guys rock. I really appreciate it. If you're getting some value, drop me a line as well. I also appreciate that. All right. Art Berman on energy. Enjoy. Art, excited to have you back on the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. It's been a long time. Welcome back, sir. It's a pleasure to be back and good to see you, Ben. Likewise. And uh, I was looking back. So it was all the way back at episode 14. And this was published in November 2020, which meant it was probably recorded in July 2020, nearly two years since we've spoken. And uh, yeah, just a few slightly significant things have happened in the last couple of years, yeah. well overdue for an update here. Well, I'm, 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 I'm pleased and honored to be asked back. So hopefully we'll, I'll be able to give your listeners some new perspectives. Yes, indeed. You are a petroleum geologist and an energy expert. You are Mr. Oil in my mind and would highly encourage my listeners as kind of more of an intro into what is, why is the oil in, what is impacting the oil market and why like investors should care about it. That That's episode 14. Let's start off just with an overview of the oil market, because today this is being recorded on July 13th. And the headline today was U.S. inflation hits 40-year high in June, driven by record gas prices. CPI print was 9.1%. Uh, so let's just start off by kind of painting the picture. And you sent a terrific slide deck. I can show that and reference a slide if that would be easier, but we'll definitely get into that one further on. Yeah, well, so I guess the, 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 the main thing that I would like people to understand and there there is a slide that that shows this as clearly as can be and, and that is that you know in inflation the main the main cause of it the main factor for inflation in the u.s i think it's slide number one and yeah there you go it's oil price and it it, it it's astonishing to me as i listen to all these really smart economists and analysts talk about all the you know all the the many reasons for inflation that that very few of them ever really mention oil and if they do it's kind of parenthetically 
Uh, of course, energy is left out of core inflation, which gives you some idea of you know, sort of how, you know, just how bizarre everything is. But the, this, this chart goes from January of 15, 2015 through June of 2022. And, you know, I don't want to insult anybody by trying to help them see the obvious correlation. This is West Texas intermediate U.S. oil price and U.S. inflation. And I mean, you know, it's, it's about as good a correlation as you get in the real world. And so this shows today's inflation print of 9.1%, and it shows June's oil price of almost $115. So in my world, and it's not because I'm partisan, I, you know, I, I, I look at all commodities. If you had to choose one factor that controls inflation, it's oil price. It's just that simple. And, and so why would that be the case? Well, because, I mean, the economy runs on energy. I mean, you, I mean, we have to work to make money. And most of our work comes from energy, which in the modern world, most of it is oil. And so when the price of oil or energy goes up, then the cost of doing business goes up. And that gets passed along all through the economy. So the fact that there is such a beautiful correlation comes as no surprise to me, but I think it maybe is a little bit of maybe not a surprise, but a little bit of a revelation when I make a statement as strong as high oil price is the leading cause of inflation. There are people that will argue with me about that, and I'm going to stand my ground. You know, look at this chart and tell me where I'm wrong. That's all I can say. Yeah. Well, what are the arguments here that it's actually money printing and this is actually what happens after money printing is everything goes up, including oil? Is that the main argument that kind of people people are saying? That's certainly one of them. And, and so I turn that around and say, well, what is money? You know, you want to make an argument that it's not oil or energy, that it's money. Tell me what money is. And after a certain amount of, you know, deer in the headlight kind of things, that's not a question that people often ask. I often have to say, well, look, I mean, money is a claim on energy. It's just that simple. If we go back to, you know, ancient times, you know, pre-industrial, sometime after the agricultural revolution in you know, 10,000, 11,000, 12,000 years ago, that was the first time that humans accumulated a surplus. Okay, when, when, when we were hunter-gatherers, when we got hungry, we went out and killed something. You know, we all went out and you know, killed a mastodon or whatever, and we had enough food for you know, a couple of weeks, just sort of like our you know, our, our, our predator friends on the savannah do right now, they go out and they get a kill and it feeds them for a couple of days or a week and they lay around and, you know, nurse their cubs or play around with their friends until they have to work again. Okay, well, suddenly with agriculture, we had some people were able to accumulate a surplus because they could store grain, which they really couldn't do at the time with meat. And so... Some people had enough surplus that they could say, well, you know, there's some work I need to do. I need to dig a ditch. Hey, Ben, how about if you dig this ditch for me, because I don't feel like doing it, and I'll give you a bushel of wheat in exchange for your work. Okay, calories for calories, 
rules for duels. Okay, think about it however you want. And you might say, screw you, or sure, why not? And you do the work, and you take your bushel of wheat home, and you know, you and your family can make bread or do whatever you like. Well, that, that's pretty awkward after a while. And so eventually, rather than exchange the wheat for the work, we invent a, a, a coin. And the coin is good for a bushel of wheat. And it's a whole lot easier. You put it in your pocket instead of having to you know, carry it on your back. And eventually, money became the exchange that humans used. But it was just a claim. It was a token. It, it, it represented work. It represented calories or jewels. Now, in today's world, we forget about all of that. But, that's it, but it hasn't changed. And so when we print money, if that's really the right word for things, and you know more about this than I do, but money is a claim on work, and debt is a lien on future energy. It's just that simple. And so when you print a lot of money that you don't have any any material basis for, then the assumption is that, I mean, money is a debt, right? I mean, that, that's what it is today because there's no gold backing it up. And so the assumption is you're going you're gonna to pay that, 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 that debt by production of future energy, okay? And if you can do it, that's good. And if you can't, then we're all in trouble. And, and so to me, it's, you know, it seems intuitive, that, that that's the way it works. But I understand it's easy to forget. It's easy to think that money has a life of its own, but it doesn't. Nothing has a life of its own. Everything relates to something and we're not stupid. I mean, you know, we, we don't work so that we can have a stack of bills. We have to be able to do something. Like that. So that's the argument. It's, it's, it's really quite simple and as basic as it gets. Yeah, that's helpful to go back to the basics, because I think you, you do kind of get a little bit confused us as humans when all of the intricacies of, of how money is in the system. So going back to the basics like that, and, you know, for the record, terrific ditch digger, this guy. So, you know, happy, happy for, well, if we slip into a the full on depression, you know, maybe I'll go back to digging ditches a little bit more often. But, uh, I hope not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's kind of a workout and stuff. No. So since we chatted like Ukraine, Russia, US boycott on Russian oil, I mean, you talk about a lot about supply and demand. This has significantly changed the supply, the dynamic of supply and demand within the market. Let's talk about supply and kind of some of the some of, some of the big changes. And again, for, for my listeners on podcast, if you check this out on YouTube, we're likely going through a slide deck that Art has shared, and I'll have this in the show notes as well that you can flip through as well. Well, What's going on in Ukraine is a, is a fundamental restructuring of the world order of power. I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't prepare these comments you know, for shock value or anything. That, that's just, you know, we've just covered two big ticket items, inflation and, and what's going on in Ukraine. And, and so I'm, I'm certainly... My, my first degree was in history, so I know a little bit about these things, but I, I'm, I'm not a political scientist. But what, what's happening in Ukraine is so much more 
than Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine has, has kind of been the focal point of all kinds of stuff in our lives for many years, not the least of which was, you know, all the impeachment issues with with Trump, I mean, those kind of centered on Ukraine, and Biden's son has stuff going on in Ukraine, and there's a reason for that, okay? And so Ukraine is a, is a, is a huge transit point for mostly natural gas coming out of, out of Russia into Europe. Now, that has changed somewhat in the last few years because Russia doesn't want to be that dependent on Ukraine. But nonetheless, Ukraine is an energy crossroad. And, and Ukraine is a place where, where NATO, Western interests clash with Russian, therefore Eastern interests, and an awful lot of nations which are semi-unaligned, like India, Turkey, I mean, Turkey's a member of NATO, but they could kind of go either way. China's certainly aligned, but they're, they're not aligned with NATO. You know, these are countries that are saying, well, you know, we don't really agree with you. We don't, we don't think that we really want to sanction Russia. In fact, we, we kind of like the deal that's going on right now because we can buy Russian oil real cheap. So, you know, this is a restructuring of, of the way that the, that the world apportions its energy. And with what I said before about how energy is the economy, that, that's kind of a significant thing. And, and so without getting into the details, which I don't care to because it's a distraction, you know, let, let's just leave it there. I think you know and your, your listeners know that Ukraine does a lot of other things, like produces a huge amount of food in the form of grain and all sorts of, you know, of other significant commodities for the world. It's, you know, it's not a, I mean, it's a significant provider of, of, of a lot of things to the world and a transit point for those. So, the war is, is complicating supply chains in ways that, you know, we thought we were a little bit out of that, that bind, and, and here we find ourselves again. So it's, it's a mess. But let me conclude my comments on Ukraine with a little-known fact that I think is super important, and that is, believe it or not, and you can believe it, Vladimir Putin has a PhD, and his PhD is in mineral economics. And he wrote his dissertation on the fact that the Russian, the Soviet Union fell because it failed to manage its oil and gas assets correctly. Okay, so whether and, and or this not... Is, this is mind-blowing for those of you that don't understand that. Like, this is a very uh, smart guy. And there's, there's theories about somebody ghostwriting or whatever, but like... He probably very, underst- very much understands these things. So he's not... He's not off his rocker with these decisions, probably. No, and 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 I, and I wish he were. You know, from a from a partisan perspective, as an American, but and and you're right. I mean, there are rumors that you know, well, maybe he didn't write the thesis himself. But nonetheless, I would argue that you know, discount it any way you like. This man knows more about energy than all of the leaders of NATO countries put together. Because, and, and I don't mean this is going to sound bad, but I mean, they're, they're, they're ignorant of energy. It, it, energy is too complex. It doesn't lend itself to, a, you know, to three or four talking points. And, and Putin understands, and he knows. 
he knows that for all the talk and the kabuki dancing and, you know, all of the mime shows that are going on, that Europe is screwed without oil and gas from Russia and that he's playing, as Russians always do, the long game. And they have absolutely no chance of winning the long game. The longer he, he drags out this thing in Ukraine, whether you think he's winning or losing, it doesn't really matter. He is winning. He's winning because he wants to extract pain from the West, and he's doing it. I, just this, this morning, the German government is running models on how they can switch from gas to wood this winter. I mean, this is real. I mean, this is an official communique from the German government. Okay, so, I mean, you know, this is a huge step backward in time. And, and so this is the kind of thing, Putin knows what he's doing. He knows, I mean, you know, again, I'm not endorsing him. I'm not admiring him. I'm just saying he knows what he's doing. And Absolutely. what he's doing, aside from demonstrating how, how much everybody depends on Russia, he's showing, you know, this renewable energy thing. It just isn't working. I mean, not that it can't work, not that it's, it's a bad idea, but, you know, I don't hear anything hardly about people, you know, making a run on solar panels in Germany. I mean, they're talking about burning wood this winter for crying out loud. Okay. When push comes to shove, we got to stay warm and we have to live. And, you know, your solar panels are real nice and the wind turbines are great, but we'll, we'll talk again in a couple of years. I mean... And, 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 and you know, Ben, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an environmentalist, I'm a conservationist, I'm deeply concerned about climate change, I, I, I'm very concerned about the state of, the, of Earth's ecosystem, but this is the maximum power principle at work. And humans are going to, like all life, we're going to go for the maximum bang that we can get for our energy buck, because that's the way it works. And it ain't solar wind. Not today, not this decade, not next, maybe sometime. So that's, that's the realignment. Those are, that's the scope of the realignment that's going on in the world right now. What, what's, what's the end game here for Europe? Europe is very reliant on Russia for their oil. It's, it's July now, so it's less of a concern. But this winter, is, you know, temperatures start dropping not that far away from now in the next four or five months. What is kind of their end game? They roll over and reduce the sanctions. What has to happen here? Or burn um, down all the forests, on, I, I guess. <laughs> well, <laughs> we did that once back in the 14th century. And that's kind of when coal became a thing. Yeah, with the population that we have in the world today, the forests are not going to last very long. And, and, you know, we didn't talk about fertilizer either. I mean, this is another very important thing that both Russia and, and Ukraine provide to the world. And by the way, Ukraine has lots and lots of natural gas. And how do we make fertilizer? Well, we make it from natural gas. In fact, if you look at the, you know, like what are the, the five or so really significant technological breakthroughs that led to the 20th century, fertilizer is on Vaslav Schmiel's list, okay? And because 
the the population of the earth is 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 limited by its ability to feed a population and as of the end of world war 1 the population of planet earth was less than 2 billion and it was less than 2 billion because that's about all that earth could feed and these two german scientists haber and bosch figured out just before the war how to liquefy air which is the only source of abundant free nitrogen on planet earth and with nitrogen you can make as much fertilizer as you want and you need two things hydrogen and nitrogen you get the hydrogen from natural gas you get the nitrogen from air and kaboom we've got 8 billion people because we can feed them so when fertilizer starts becoming a problem either because it's too expensive or because there's not enough of it suddenly people starve when there isn't enough grain to distribute because of a conflict in ukraine more people starve and so i mean these are just these are just the harsh facts and again i i just you know to me it's obvious that all these things are related but i i don't think that this well not i don't think i mean this this is simply not part of the of the perspective that you get from you know watching cable tv and nor, nor should it be perhaps i mean i'm not criticizing them i'm just saying you know to to those of us that work in the energy business it's all related yeah and for, for the average person it it's just they see home prices or they see gas prices going up substantially they see the cpi prints that are out of control you know it's unclear where these things are coming from and and then you know if we have food shortages and things it will all kind of come cir- full circle but what other like what other so i mean this russia ukraine thing is going to have tons of impacts not only to oil but what other like exogenous supply factors should should we be thinking about in the world today i mean Russia was the second largest ex- exporter of crude after Saudi Arabia so i mean that actually this is right yeah yeah so yeah. the big 3 US Russia and, and Saudi Arabia and everyone thought well with all these horrible sanctions uh we need to try to you know recalculate supply and demand because i mean russian supply is going to go to who knows but uh you know one point some of us were thinking it could i mean it, it could be down 4 or 5 million barrels a day from the 10 or so that it ordinarily is and if the world is suddenly short let's say 4 or 5 million barrels a day i mean that's that's an absolute catastrophe and we haven't seen anything like that since the iran iraq war and that didn't come to pass because as i mentioned in the beginning there were other customers that were willing to buy russian oil at a discount china india being two important ones so russian exports are actually only down about a million and a half barrels a day which is enough i mean don't get me wrong that's a lot but it's not anywhere near what most people expect with gas you know there's all the there are all kinds of curious things Russia has cut off a couple of countries from gas and right now the one of the big pipelines of the Nord Stream that goes under the Baltic supposedly has a a compressor that doesn't work. Okay. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not, but it can easily be interpreted as Putin turning the screws on Germany. And Canada says, "Oh, well, you know, we've got a spare, you know, how about if we send you one?" 
and uh, Gazprom, which is Russia's big gas company, said, yeah, we, we can't really think of a way that that would work. That was as of today or yesterday. So, you know, the this is a, a continuation of what the Brits used to call the, you know, the great game. It's, it's the great game of, of, of East and West. And it's playing out just as if, you know, the, I mean, the, the players are different, some of them, but Russia is still one. And so much of, of, of England's foreign policy when they were the top country in the world was directed at Russia. I mean, they, they, they went into Afghanistan to control Russia because they wanted to keep their supply lines to India open. They, they invaded Russia from the south a couple of times. You know, this is a, this is, there's a long history to, to all of this stuff. And Russia seems to be a constant in most of kind of interesting. Very interesting and, and fits into like this broader picture of deglobalization and undoing a lot of what's been happening over the past couple decades. But right. yeah, I think we could we could go down a very dark path on this one to to avoid that. I'll pull us back and talk about so 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 clearly some massive changes supply. There's a, like a bigger chess game that's going on and, and oil is a key part of this or in, and has been since oil has been significant part of the economy. But in terms of demand, I want to jump back to your flip book. Mm-hmm. So in your presentation, you have a lot of slides really covering demand. And I think, I think this is what a lot of analysts and, and people end up talking about quite a bit is, you know, gasoline's impact and on oil prices and in general. So uh, yeah, I'll just kind of have you direct me, but you've got some fantastic slides in here. So wherever you want to start regarding this, this, demand. This is fine. So so this is US oil, WTI futures price as of today, 96.30 was its, its closing price today. And this goes back to the beginning of, of, of this year. And so what I'm showing here is just price, futures price in blue, and then the shaded area is, you know, some of your people know about Bollinger Bands. This is simply two standard deviations around the 20-day moving average, which is the dashed line. And so if you, if you believe, or I mean, it's not a belief thing, it's empirical, that, that, that prices rarely get outside of these bands. And part of that's because they change every day since it moves forward. But you know, at 96.30, we're a little bit more than two standard deviations below the mean. And that tells me that we're probably not going to go much lower. And in fact, it went up a little bit today from yesterday. Similarly, you know, if you go up and look at, you know, June 8th, we got a little bit above and lo and behold, things fell. We got a little bit below, lo and behold, things went up. So, you know, I mean, oil price is not like some sort of, you know, magical roulette wheel. I mean, there is a thing called price formation, which believe it or not, I mean, I can't tell you what the price of oil is going to be today or next week. I don't think anybody can, but it does follow some rules. And so, you know, the the great likelihood when people say, oh, oil is going to $50, I say, oh, really? That's interesting. (laughs) You know, that would be about five standard deviations below the mean. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but it certainly isn't going to happen overnight. So, I mean, that, that, that's kind of one perspective. So, as, as, as most people know, you know, nearly half of every barrel of oil is turned into gasoline. So, let's, let's take a look at the next slide. For my listeners, we're on slide six. Yeah, there you go. 
So what I'm showing here, this is actually a, an incremental graph. And so what I'm what the point is here is that if, if you read the paper, if you listen to cable news or, you know, Bloomberg or whatever, everybody says, oh, everything's going great. You know, the economy's back on track and oil consumption is going through the roof. Well, not so much. If you look at gasoline, which is in blue, and this big gap in the middle is, of course, 2020 in the COVID period. Which and, is and just which, nuts. I mean, that's talk about the collapse of demand. It's it, oh, <laughs> crazy. We, the world we've stopped. We've never seen anything like it in, in modern history. And by modern, I mean, you know, like the last two centuries. since we've been This is when things like Bollinger Bands fail, right? No, no amount of technical analysis could ever <laughs> forecast something like this. Well, you can't forecast. That's, that's a fact. But the point is, is that, you know, gasoline consumption in the United States has not recovered to the levels that it was before 2020, nor has diesel, nor has jet. Okay, these are, these are transport fuels. These are what make our economy run. Okay, and so if you look at total consumption, total consumption is more or less back to normal. But total consumption includes a lot of fluff that is not, that the main job of it is not to run the economy. So, so when people say, well, you know, demand is just great. It's going, you know, it, no, it, it's actually not. It's not terrible either, but, but it has not recovered. And I would be surprised if it does recover. So we're looking at half a million barrels of gasoline use that disappeared since COVID, okay? But so is, that, this, that's is this partly, I mean, there's a, that there's a bunch of factors, obviously, in this. Uh, one that comes to mind is electrification of the, the, the vehicle fleet, um, sure. I would think, as well as some actual changes structurally of, you know, of people traveling for work and things like that. Sure. But what, what are kind of the biggest factors in kind of- Well, let's, let's, let's move to the next slide. This is good, just, just for the heck of it. So, I mean, this actually shows, these are annual averages. And so you can see that gasoline, which is the green, is substantially less than it was over the last several years before COVID. In fact, everything is less except for the red. Those are hydrocarbon gas liquids. Those are things like ethane, propane, butane. Those are things that don't actually come from oil. They come from natural gas. And so you add all this up and you include those gas liquids and everything looks great. Okay. But, but the fact is, is that the, the, the composition, the makeup of, of what's called oil has fundamentally changed. And we're now much more focused. What's ethane used for? Ethane is the biggest single component of these gas liquids. It's used to make plastic. Okay. When, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you put some food in a baggie, that baggie's made of ethane, okay? You know, butane and, 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 and you know, propane and, and all that other stuff. Some of those are actually fuels of sorts, but most of that increase is for plastics. Let's go on to the next slide here. Yeah. Or so, if you're out in California, you know, the propane heaters, because everybody's eating outside, that the, bumped it up just a, ever so slightly, probably. <laughs> just a bit, yeah. But here, this is, this is U.S. vehicle miles traveled, okay? This is 
irrespective of, you know, electric cars, hybrid cars, gasoline cars, this is the whole shop. And what you see is that we are driving less after COVID. You mentioned that. I've got a chart that I didn't include that goes all the way back to 2000. And what we find is that we've been driving less since about 2006. So Americans are driving less. There are many reasons we can discuss, but it's a fact. Let's go on to the next. Well, and I would think that this trend continues with work from home and, and, and a number of other things. But, but it was happening general. long before work from home. Yeah. So you mentioned electric cars, and I'm going to say, uh-uh, not a factor. This shows the uh, starting in 2021, the, the composition of the U.S. car fleet, all right? And so blue are conventional internal combustion cars. The red are other alternative like hybrid and plug-in and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And then the yellow is electric. So as of 2021, only 1% of the vehicle fleet was electric. So a rounding error to zero. Not enough electric cars to make a difference. And, and, and the forecast here, this comes from the U.S. Department of Energy. It's a forecast. It's wrong. But it's notionally, it's notionally correct, directionally correct. And so this data says that by 2050, electric cars may represent 9% of the U.S. car fleet. That's so insignificant still it's on such a long time frame. This blows me away. So 1%... Of number of cars in the U.S. is represented by you electronic electric cars. That's correct. I mean, it, it is this is the number of cars inflated somehow by no, tr- transport, no. which is tough to replace by electric or no? This that, is it. That's this so. Is, this low. is how it's. I've 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 made a version of this chart every year for the last five years. I don't generate the data. I mean, yeah. I just. Well, I mean, it's just a rounding error. I mean, it's well, crazy. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, this is, this is, and, and there'll be people that say, oh, that, that can't be right. That's clearly wrong. And I say, fine. I know it's wrong. Double it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Four exit. It. It's still like very it, it's small. Still, you know, it, it, it's not going to change the world. Mm. It may change the world a little bit mm. and that's fine. But, you know, we're, I mean, the, the, the focus of our discussion, Ben, is energy crisis, okay? <laughs> we're not yeah. going to solve a crisis with electric cars, okay? We're not going to mm-hmm. solve a crisis with wind turbines and solar panels. We're in a crisis, okay? I, I don't know what the next slide is, but go to it. Well, yeah, this is cool. The, the other reason that people will cite for driving less is efficiency, fuel efficiency, you know, cafe standards and all of that. To which I say nonsense. Again, not because I want to say it, because this is data. This is data from, you know, the the U.S. EPA. And what we see, we see three things. We see the blue is fuel efficiency measured in miles per gallon on the left. The red is gasoline price, and that's normalized or, you know, deflated to $20, $21. And then there's the fuel efficiency change, which is in gray, just the, you know, the annual change in fuel efficiency. And what you see is there was a huge improvement in fuel efficiency 
on the left side of the graph, starting in 1975 up until about 1987. Okay, that's when we had the first oil shocks. And price of gas got real expensive. And guess what? Consumers told the car makers, we want better gas mileage. It was easy to do that. Because all you had to do was take a, you know, a four-ton car and, and shave off a bunch of steel and replace it with plastic and aluminum, and you could reduce the weight of the car by 30 or 40 percent and improve gas mileage. And so that big efficiency gain that you see on the left side of the graph was just that. It was just lightening up the vehicles. Then we went through a long period where efficiency actually decreased. That's because oil price went down. People didn't care anymore about mm. fuel efficiency. And then beginning in about 2004 or five, when oil prices, gasoline prices started going up, we had an improvement, but not nearly as dramatic as what we saw in the 1970s. And the reason was the low hanging fruit had already been picked. Okay, We'd already reduced the weight of the vehicle. So how, how were these efficiency changes achieved? They were achieved through aerodynamics, but mostly through figuring out ways of recycling waste heat. All right, your car engine gets hot. You know, you know that. <laughs> and so they, 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 engineers figured out ways of reusing that heat as energy. Okay. But now we look at where we are today, and over the last five years, we're flat. There's been, there's been no improvement in fuel efficiency, despite the ups and downs in gasoline prices. And I would argue that efficiency or technology, despite the popular notion, is not a continual process. It's a, it's a stepwise process where some new advance takes place. It makes a big difference until everybody uses it and then it goes away. And we reset to the same slope we were on before at a higher level. And so I would argue, not because I'm a pessimist, but just because I understand how, how the second law of thermodynamics works, is we're playing the game of diminishing returns here. That will there be, can there be in additional increases in fuel efficiency? Of course they, there can, and there will be. But they're not going to be as great as they were in the early 2000s, and which were not nearly as great as they were in the 1970s. Because there are limits to how much you can improve this efficiency. So, again, I don't want to, you know, rain on anybody's, you know, faith-based belief in, in the fact that technology will always save us. But technology does not create energy. And, and, and that's, that's a fact. So, so these are, you know, these are kind of the, the, the hard limits to, to the, the bigger problem that we're talking about. The takeaways here and all of this kind of fits into this energy crisis is that we're not using any less less gasoline significantly, certainly not by fuel efficiency or electric cars, and we're not really driving that much less. Maybe it's it's structurally a little bit different, but I want to I want to jump into I think this this slide twelve probably is the next good one to jump into. We consume energy. The world runs on energy. You say it all the time, but I think that this this chart shows it quite well. Yeah, so this chart shows all of the forms of energy from biomass all the way to wind and solar from the year 1800, 
I mean, this is, this is some pretty cool stuff. <laughs> Obviously, our confidence diminishes it's, a bit. It's directionally accurate, I bet. <laughs> no, it, it, I think it's quite directionally accurate. And certainly, the last hundred years is, is quite accurate. But what we see is that per capita energy consumption, which is black, increases stepwise, just as I've been talking about. And, and whenever per capita energy consumption increases, the economy grows, as does the general prosperity of, of individuals. And, and you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to try to explain why that's the case, but it's simply a matter of productivity, that if, if I can produce more work with the same amount of effort by using a more efficient fuel like oil instead of coal, then it's a win. It's a win for, for, for everybody because we get more work from the same number of people. And so what we see is that when we look at the, the first words on there, coal, 1830 to 1940, we saw a, a, a gradual increase and then a fairly sharp increase in the 20, early part of the 20th century as more and more of the world started using coal. Then we got to a flat spot, 1925 to 40. And you can argue that some of that was the depression, and, and I would agree with you. But then oil comes into the picture. That's the green. And look at what happens. Look at that, that incredible increase in, in world energy consumption. I mean, it is a rocket ship because oil is so much more productive. It has so much, it's so much more energy dense than coal and wood. And that's where the world economy. That's where we got this whole notion of progress, that it lifted so much of the world out of subsistence and into prosperity. And then, kaboom, we hit a ceiling in 1974 to 2000. What was that? High oil prices. That's when we had the, you know, the Yom Kippur War, the Iran-Iraq War. That's when oil prices went crazy. And what's the result? People started consuming less. That's what we do. We adjust. All right. Then we get into natural gas. Gas 2000 to 2008. Fit into the next piece of the pie. That was a huge jump, but it was brief. It was kind of stillborn. It was just as steep, if not steeper, than oil because there's a ton of gas in the world and it's really cheap. Well, what happened? Well, the financial crisis happened in 2008. And then investors said, no, 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 we don't want any more of this fossil fuel. We want wind and solar, which is absolutely a step backward in terms of energy content and productivity. Again, you know, no bias here. I'm all for them. You just can't, you, know, you, you can't make them more than they are. And so we've been on a flat spot relatively in terms of energy consumption since 2008. And it's hard to grow the world's economy when you're not increasing your productivity. So another way to think about all this is, is the world uses, you know, something like, you know, a hundred million, you know, or the, the world uses, we use a hundred million barrels of, of, of oil a day. And in terms of all the fossil fuels we use, I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it's even more. And, and, and so if a barrel of oil contains about 10 or 11 years worth of work, 
which it does. And, and you can discount that back with, you know, the number of days of the week and all that. And let's just say it's, it's four and a half or five. You, you multiply that by the number of, of barrels of oil equivalent of all this. And we have a system of slavery in the world where we have 8 billion people who have 500 billion fossil energy slaves working for us all the time. I mean, that's the math that, that it works out to be. And so you want to know why the world is so productive? You want to know why we got rid of human slavery? Because we got a better form of slavery, and it's called fossil energy. And, and, and for people who think that we can just turn that off and still have growth in our economy, let's go to the next slide. Yeah, this one really hammers it home. So we're on this slide is, this 13. This is an absolute depressing slide. It's terrible. <laughs> this shows all of the different forms of energy, but I've lumped them here. And so we've got non-fossil in green, coal, oil, and gas, and I'm showing population, world population in black. And you see the, the, the yellow line at the bottom? That's renewable, that little bitty blip at the bottom. And so without you know, trying to take this thing too literally, if the world were to rely solely on non-fossil, which includes hydroelectric, nuclear, biomass, you know, all that kind of stuff, in addition to, you know, to renewables, we could only support about 2 billion people today on that energy. And so, but we got almost 8 billion. So let's just be super optimistic and say, well, it's going to grow. I mean, we're going to grow that, and we are. Let's triple it. You triple it, and that says that you can support 6 billion people on non-fossil energy. Well, the UN estimates that we're going to have about 10 billion people in 2050. So to put this in a really dark perspective, 4 billion people have to die so that we can have the world run on clean energy. And, you know... <laughs> It could be a whole lot more than that because that assumes that you know that that everybody just peacefully dies and 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 we don't have wars and we don't have massive immigration and all that kind of stuff. But just, I mean, you want to talk about a crisis? Likely the case. is a real scary crisis that all of these people that are you know beating the table about oh we got to get off of fossil fuel I and mean, it's killing us. Well. I agree, it is. And, and, and this will also kill us. So, gosh, you know, people then look at me and saying, Art, you're so depressing. You know, we're damned if we do, we're damned if we don't. Well, my, my role here is, you know, I'm a scientist and, and, and I want people to understand what it is that we're trying to navigate. And I'm not here to you know, to, to, to fill you full of, you know, of, of sweet nothings and, you know, paint a rosy picture or a negative picture. But if you don't know what's going, what's out there, then you can't possibly prosper, can you? Well, and so, you look at the data, right? And it's like the, the, the narrative that you're hearing isn't quite supported by the data. And in this slide really, really hits it home. And it's tough not to end with like pitchforks and torches with this stuff. <laughs> so, but like, so this is, this is, it's tough to be bearish oil 
oil usage within the economy, within the world. Um, but I want to I want to ask you, what is the most credible like bear case for oil? We've looked at the data. All of these charts kind of support this energy crisis. Oil's not going away, but like there's got to be some credible bearish take on all of this. What is it and why? Yeah, so humans, we don't, we don't change our behavior very much except in, in situations of trauma. A crisis is what causes us to change our behavior, and it's usually crisis that, that causes people to be really good to each other, too. When, when, when things get totally scary and, like, you know, all of our lives are on the line, that seems like when I'm willing to risk my life for yours. As long as things are relatively comfortable and I can make a few extra bucks at your expense, I'm going to screw you. <laughs> but we get really, we get, we get strangely altruistic when, we, when, when we're leveled and we see ourselves as, as sharing in a common survival problem. And, and so, the, you know, everybody's going to ask me, well, yeah, Art, but I mean, what's the answer? And the answer is pretty simple. The answer is use less energy. It's real simple. I say it's simple. I, but I, I thought we're you not were going to go real dark. Like, if, just be less people at the world. <laughs> it's like, well, oh, no, that, art. You go even darker. <laughs> well, it, it goes there, but it has to start somewhere. Okay. And, 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 and where it starts is that we have to be shocked into a recognition that we can't go on consuming the amount of energy that we are now. Now, there's somebody, probably a, a great deal of somebody out there right now listening to this and saying, oh, well, you know, you're coming at it from an oil and gas perspective and you're biased. And, you know, despite what you've shown me, you know, renewables are after all the answer. Well, I wish that were true. But the problem with that is that is that if, if we continue to consume the same amount of energy roughly that we are now, it really doesn't matter if it's fossil-based or non-fossil-based, that by the time you get done doing all the, the energy accounting for the mining and the, the transportation and the manufacturing and the distribution, you end, up, you end up making the earth unlivable for most of its ecosystem, no matter how you do it. Is it, is it, is it better if, if you use less fossil energy slightly, somewhat? You know, is it is it 50 percent better? No way. Is it 10 percent? Optimistically, it could be. It could be, except we're not ready to make it 10 percent, not even close. And so the first thing I would like people to consider. Is it's not whether we use energy type A or energy type B. If our goal is to continue living at this crazy level of, of, of standard that we have where everybody can afford a 5,000 square foot house or think they can, we're, we're screwed. Okay. I mean, that's got to stop and it isn't going to stop by choice. It's going to, it's going to stop by, by necessity, but we cannot prosper as a species if our ecosystem is wrecked 
and it's wrecked right now. I mean, the number of species that are becoming extinct because of human activity, and I'm not even talking about climate change. I don't want to get into that can of worms, okay? Let's just talk. I mean, you, you can't dispute the, the species extinctions. You cannot dispute the acidification of the ocean. You cannot dispute the amount of crap, the plastic, and all this garbage that's in the ocean. You can't do it. I mean, it's just, it's just a fact. And all of that is to support growth of, of our species. Okay, so at some point, you know, we have to learn to live within the, the context and, and, and rules of the global ecosystem. And the first way to do that is to learn to consume less. And the, the, the silver lining, if there is one, in this horrible thing that Vladimir Putin is doing, and by the way, it's not just him. I mean, Russia, is big, they, they think it's great. I mean, most Russians do. But I don't want to get into the culture piece of that. That kind of thing, COVID, things like that, 2008 financial crisis, those bring us closer to having to honestly, ruthlessly assess our situation on planet Earth. So I'm not welcoming it. I know it's uncomfortable, but it's a whole lot less uncomfortable to be, become aware of it now rather than, oh, God, a billion people just died kind of thing. So I, I'm not preaching hope. But I'm not preaching, I'm not preaching doom either. But we have to start somewhere and we start with awareness. And once once some of us have a common awareness and we can we can call nonsense on a lot of the proposals that we see out there, you know, like the Green New Deal. And again, this is purely non-political, okay? The Green New Deal is energy, it, it, it's it's made by energy morons. Okay, it's concocted by people who either don't understand energy or are so cynical that they're just promoting it, you know, to, to, to move their own careers forward. It, it, it's a non-starter. It doesn't work. Net zero by 2050 is an, is an absolute impossibility. It just, it just cannot possibly be. And these are not art's opinions. The, I mean, this is physics. This is just basic physics. You cannot do what is impossible to do. And you certainly can't do it in the time frame that, that people are talking about. So some way or another, people have to learn enough to say, wait a minute. No, that's not, that, that, that can't work. That is not how we're going to get here. You know, we got people, you know, all these extinction people. Oh, well, you know, we have to get off fossil fuel tomorrow. Well, okay, you know, let's try that one. Out. No, we can't do that. You know, I wish we could, but we can't. So we have to, we have to we have to have you know some sense of what is feasible. How can we minimize the suffering and the decrease in population? How can we do this in a way that doesn't cause the kind of catastrophes that it will cause if we don't do anything? And again, I'm not I'm not talking about climate change. Climate change is a subset. Climate change is a part of of abusing the ecosystem. So I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic because you're helping more people at least hear a perspective that maybe is new to them. Mm. And, and, and 
you know, some percentage of those who hear it will dismiss it and say, well, he's, he's a crackpot, you know, and we don't like him. And, you know, he was wrong about something 20 years ago. So probably he's wrong about this too. And okay, fine. But, but, you know, some people will hear it and, and, and will remember, you know, that, that we actually do have a problem and, and, and that's how we begin. But we certainly cannot, we cannot chart a path forward until there's a certain core group of people that, that, that say, yeah, okay, we don't need to thrash this out anymore. We get it. Yeah. And I, I want to leave my listeners. So, I mean, education awareness on this is, is obviously the most important thing. And hopefully this, this talk and all that you do helps with that. But is there any, and perhaps being involved more politically with some of these decisions and, and, and voting on, on things that make actual sense, but are there any changes that like the average listener could do at home, a, a small increase, but like make any difference in energy consumption for them as a household? Well, there are, and, and, and there, but, but, you know, I don't want to distract. I, I don't, I mean, let's just say that, you know, if, if you don't want to use plastic straws, then you shouldn't, but it, you know, it's a rounding error to zero. Most of the things that I could talk about right now are, are, are wise and appropriate, but they, they don't make a difference until, until enough people say enough. You know, enough of the bungling of, of energy policy and demand that, you know, that, that we, we at least talk about a, a different direction. But my advice to people is open your eyes, understand what's out there, and think about, you know, what's really important to you. What, you know, if, if, if your happiness is dependent upon continuing to earn more money, then I promise you, you will be an unhappy person in the future because the world is going to get poorer. And, it, you know, it's, it's inevitable. I mean, you, you cannot continue to grow at the rate that, that we have. It's, it's just not possible. It's like fuel efficiency. You know, it's a diminishing returns kind of thing. And so, you know, could we imagine? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 70 some odd years old. You know, when I was 20 years old, I mean, no, almost nobody had houses that had more than two bedrooms in them. You know, life was pretty good. I mean, you know, would it be so awful to go back to living standards of, you know, 1970 United States? It, it would be a big step down from where we are now. But no, we, we did just fine. We did great, you know. And, and so you know, when you, when you think about it that way, it's not nearly as, as radical. It's, you know, it, it, it's, uh, if, if, you, if you break it into pieces, it makes sense. But, but we have to be willing to, to learn how to be satisfied with, with less. And that means more of the people that we enjoy, the things that we like to do that don't necessarily cost a lot of money and therefore use a lot of energy. And, and, and some people say, well, that's, that's bogus, you know, that's shallow. Well, I wish I, had a, I wish I had a more substantial answer to give you, but that's what I do in my life. What I do in my life is try to figure out how can I be happy in this moment without having to constantly figure out how to make more money and use more energy. 
and it seems like to it. work for me. Yeah. No, I, well, and people people don't go for a backpacking trip through the mountains and you realize how how little you need <laughs> to to truly be happy and like subside on life, but yeah, art is it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I mean, albeit a little dark, but uh, you know, it's tend, these things tend to get dark if you start thinking critically about like the path that we're on. And if, if we continue at the trajectory we are, it certainly isn't like a great scenario. So these are, these are great wake up calls for my listeners and a really good deep dive on the oil market and, and how it goes and impactors within that. So I'll link the show notes and link your website, your Twitter, which is a, a treasure trove of information. But where else, where would you like to send my listeners? Where can they find out about? Well, you can you find out, you know, my daily brain dump and, and lots of charts at AE Berman 12 on Twitter and artberman.com is my website. There's a lot of free stuff on there. There's some subscription stuff also, but between those two, if you want to learn more, it's there, it's free. And, you know, people, I'll just leave with people saying, you know, Art, the difference between you and me is that you're a pessimist and I'm an optimist. To which I say, hmm, I'm not either optimistic or pessimistic. I'm a scientist. I look at data. I look at information. As I get more information, my interpretation of it often changes. Hopefully, it always changes. But pessimism or optimism is just not part of the equation. I'm showing you data. If you find any of my data is wrong, please let me know. I do make mistakes. But I think that you've seen enough to understand that, that what I'm telling you is not based on my opinion. It's based on data. It's based on information. And therefore, it's neutral. It's neither positive or negative. What you do with it can be very positive or negative, but it is what it is. I'm not a pessimist. <laughs> All right. I wish it's I could been... give you a happy. <laughs> yeah. A happy yeah. Well, that just ignore like all of the data and you, you know go along living your 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 life, and you'll be show you the part that looks good, right? That'd yeah. Be, that yeah, wouldn't exactly. be fair. That wouldn't be right. no. It's not. It's not. Right. Appreciate. As always, Art, great to see you and appreciate the update. Okay, thanks, Ben. Always a pleasure. There you go. First off, thank you very much for listening all the way through. I hope you got a lot of value out of that conversation. As always, you can find show notes, links, and more at altassetallocation.com. Please share this with anyone you think might be interested and derive any value from this conversation. And as always, you can reach out to me for any feedback or questions. Please give the video a like, or even better, subscribe on YouTube or your podcast player of choice. This really helps others find the podcast or the video as well. Thanks a lot. Hope everybody has a fantastic day and stay safe out there and invest wisely. Cheers.